Hi, I'm Joy Howard, editor of Brigham Health Magazine. Thank you for listening to The Science of Addiction, brought to you by Brigham Health. We provide the latest information on today's health topics directly from our experts. In this live recording from Access Brigham Health, our panel discusses the Brigham's approach to addressing causes and treatments of substance use disorders. Please remember this information should not take the place of recommendations from your healthcare providers. Good evening. My name is Chuck Morris. My day job is as a clinical internist where I have the privilege of caring for patients, both in the ambulatory setting and in the hospital, but I also function as the Associate Chief Medical Officer here at the Brigham and Women's. And tonight I'm really excited to have three dear friends and colleagues share their content expertise and knowledge around the science of addiction. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce the three in no particular order, just because they're sitting next to me. So Dr. Kristen Price is the Administrative Program Director for the Bridge Clinic. You heard Peter mention the Bridge Clinic. We're going to learn more about why do we call it the Bridge Clinic and what's that good work that they're doing. Dr. Joji Suzuki is the Director of the Division of Addiction Psychiatry, and he'll talk more about sort of what's the scope of that work and, and uh, the remarkable performance <coughs> and research that he's helping to lead. And then Dr. Scott Weiner at the end, who is the Director for the Brigham Comprehensive Opioid Response and Education Program. We shorten that to B-Core. He'll talk to you, I'm sure, about what that is and what's in the scope of that. He's also the Chief of Emergency Medicine for the Division of Health Policy. And so I want to, again, welcome the, the three of you. We've had the good fortune of sharing patients and working administratively, and I'm looking forward to hearing everything you have to share tonight. So, Georgie, I'm going to start with you. In 2017, there were over 70,000 opioid-related deaths in this country, and that was a 10% increase from the year prior. And I think we all have heard versions and variations of those figures, but can you speak a little bit at sort of a high level about how this sort of epidemic starts, both at the population level and at the patient level, and why are we seeing this sort of near relentless rise year after year? So right off the bat, 50% of the risk of developing a substance use disorder is genetically based. Genetically, we're the same for the last 10, 20, 30,000 years. From the get-go, our genetic predisposition accounts for the risk itself. The rest of it comes from environmental and other factors. It's not just the exposure to drugs that cause it and the availability, peer group, any comorbid psychiatric issues or medical problems, perceived risk or safety of the substance, really account for the, both the protective and risk factors on whether you develop a substance use disorder. So in the context of the current crisis, really, the exposure was a really big part of it. We've had opioids available to humans for thousands of years. Opioids include things like morphine or codeine. That's part of opium. And we've gone through cycles of epidemics in the, in the human history. But this particular epidemic was really caused by the overabundance of these opioids being made available to the public in just large quantities. And I'm sure Dr. Weiner can really speak more to that as well. But just the great exposure to it and the perceived safety of it. If you look at the individuals with opioid addiction today, the vast majority did not start with heroin. In fact, if you ask kids today, you know, 15-year-old, 18-year-old, 20-year-old kids, if, if they want to try heroin, the majority will say, absolutely not. That's disgusting. Why would I shoot that up in my veins? That's disgusting. But they'd happily crush a, you know, OxyContin up their nose because the perception was that this was a safer drug, that it was prescribed by a doctor. Therefore, it must be safe. And thankfully today, 
kids today are now uh, recognizing that these pills are very dangerous and no different than heroin in terms of the, the pharmacology. But essentially, we had an entire generation of young adults who believe that these medications are safe to use. It's in everybody's medicine cabinets at home. And therefore, what's the big deal taking a few? Another thing that really makes opioid addiction so much more dangerous is that unlike other types of substances where it takes maybe years or decades for the addiction to develop, with opioids, it's not uncommon for us to hear that patients go from initial use to addiction within a matter of months. It can happen that quickly, sometimes even quicker than that. I've had patients who, who, who started using within a few weeks, started injecting. That's really unusual with, with the other substances. With the alcohol, for example, it typically takes years, if not decades. So the rapid progression, the perceived safety of it, and the dramatic availability really contributed to the dramatic rise in opioid addiction in this country. Thank you, Georgie. Scott, maybe you could take the next question. So given that rise that we're seeing in substance use disorders, we've seen a concomitant rise in patients seeking care, certainly through my primary care clinic, through psychiatry clinics, and through the emergency department. Can you speak a little bit, wearing your hat as an emergency medicine clinician, sort of our emergency department's approach, what you're seeing as a physician in that area, and what are some of the strategies and sort of innovative approaches you're using to, to help care for patients with substance use disorders? So as Chuck said, I'm an, I am an emergency physician, so I am still taking patients. <laughs> um, but of course you don't want to see me, but I'm there when you need me. So I was thinking about this. I've, I've actually been practicing emergency medicine in Boston for 19 years now. Even though I feel like I'm always from Southern California and every winter I'm going to be leaving, but that hasn't happened yet. But, <laughs> but for the vast majority of those 19 years, we treated patients that presented with opioid use disorder in exactly the same way. The scenario is this. Someone comes in after a crisis. They've had an overdose. They got some Narcan by the ambulance and they, they come into the hospital. They come into the ER. Or it could be someone that's simply requesting help. I'm having withdrawal. I need help for my opioid use disorder. And for many, many years, all we did was the exact same thing. Put them in a hallway, check on them every once in a while, make sure that they were breathing, and then discharge them with a list of phone numbers. And the list of phone numbers had detox resources, counseling in the community, um, things that I knew the patient would never be able to follow on that. Because to be able to be organized enough to make a phone call and then say, we don't have an appointment today, you have to come back in two weeks from Thursday, show up at three o'clock. It just doesn't work because the brain has been hijacked by this addiction. So I'm really delighted that probably in the past year or so, we've had this total sea change in how we approach this within the emergency department. And it started with a study that was done actually down in Yale, where they said, you know what? We're going to start treating people that present with withdrawal with uh, buprenorphine. Buprenorphine is a medicine, the common trade name is called Suboxone, which you might have heard about. It's a very interesting medication because it works kind of like those opioids that Georgie was talking about. It sits on the same receptors in the brain, but it doesn't give people a high. And the most important thing is that it takes away the feeling of withdrawal. So what we've learned and what we're now applying here at the Brigham is that if you present and you're in withdrawal, we will give you this medication if you're interested in having it, if you're, you know, of course, you meet criteria, you know, by certain clinical criteria. What we're finding is that it takes away that total, absolute fear of withdrawal that patients have. And they tell us that it's like the withdrawal is the worst thing you could potentially feel. I've, I've heard people say, you know the flu? 
multiply it by a thousand. Like that's, that's, it's, it's just the most uncomfortable thing. And people don't think straight when they're thinking about how they're going to avoid this pain of withdrawal going forward. So now what we do very different than before is we can start them on the medication. We have a bridge clinic, which you're going to hear about in a moment, which is just absolutely pivotal and has, has completely changed our approach. And we're, we're shepherding patients into, into treatment, get them stabilized, get them on routines, get them in a place where then they can eventually make this appointment. And Kristen will talk a lot more about that. But we're just seeing tremendous success with this model. So <clears throat> Kristen, Scott's teed you right up. But you, we, we've, we've already talked a little bit about this sort of sea change, how we've moved from a very sort of criminal justice or perspective of substance use to we don't do that here, mm -hmm. to now today being April 2nd. And April 2nd, 2018, one year ago today, was really day one of business for the Bridge Clinic. Right. So could you describe a little bit about the scope of work and the kinds of services you're providing and how that really reflects that sea change that Joji and Scott have already mentioned? Sure. So what we've already been alluding to is that sort of over the years leading up to April 2nd of 2018, our hospital beds were filled with patients that had complications related to injection drug use. I trained in infectious disease. All my infectious disease consults were to treat the infections of heart valves and joints. And at one point, we had more patients on our cardiology floor with infections on their heart valves than those waiting bypass surgery. We also know that our EDs were flooded after patients were coming in after being revived with Narcan. And then we also got data from MassHealth that showed of all of our primary care patients that were on Medicaid, for the top 5% highest cost, substance use disorder was the most prevalent condition. For the next 10%, substance use disorder was the most prevalent condition. And for the remaining 85% of patients with Medicaid that were seeing our primary care doctors, substance use disorder were second only to asthma. And so what we knew is we also have seen in Massachusetts, there's data showing that for Massachusetts residents that go on to have a fatal opioid overdose, 52% have had some touch point with the healthcare system in the months leading up to that overdose. So we can no longer say that we don't do it here because they're coming and they're here. And if we don't do something, they are gonna be one of those statistics. And it's not that we didn't have comprehensive addiction programs here at the Faulkner. Under Joji's leadership for the past decade, we can offer a level four detox. We can offer a partial hospital program. We can offer um, a dual diagnosis program. But like many other programs, there's a three or a four week wait for that initial appointment. And as we know, sometimes waiting 24 hours is just too long. And so what we decided is with the support of many people here, we opened the doors to the Bridge Clinic to provide rapid, if not immediate access into treatment. And what does that look like then when someone walks into our door? They're walked over um, by an ED nurse and they can walk in and be seen right away. So we have a multidisciplinary team, which really sets us apart from any other bridge model across the country and in Boston. So we have medicine providers who have addiction experience and are trained in addiction. So they can not only treat the underlying substance use disorder, but they can treat any sort of urgent medical need that goes along with patients. Because you can imagine most of these patients have not actually been in primary care for almost the length of their addiction. We have addiction psychiatrists who see patients because upwards of 80% of our patients have an underlying depression, anxiety, trauma history that also needs to be treated. 
We have an embedded infectious disease physician who actually at the same time is treating the opioid addiction is treating and curing their hepatitis C and treating their HIV. And we have um, a director of women's health who is actually scaling up our perinatal addiction program because Brigham has the most newborn deliveries in the state. That's not enough. We actually need to address way more than just the underlying addiction. And so just as critical as our team of providers, we actually have non-clinical folks who work to address the other social and economic factors that often coexist with the underlying substance use disorder. So we have a resource specialist who meets with almost every patient, especially those that need it, because 30% of our patients are homeless, not couch surfing, living on the street or in shelters. And she helps them fill out housing applications. 25% of our patients, when they walk in our door, do not have a working phone or an identification card, which you can imagine makes it really difficult to pick up medications or keep clinic appointments. Within a week, she has them on SNAP benefits and has a SafeLink phone that they can access. We also have recovery coaches, which is a fairly new role in the world of addiction. So these are non-clinical folks who actually are in sustained recovery themselves, and they provide that peer support for patients even beyond the walls of the clinic. They will accompany them to meetings in the community. They will accompany them to court dates if they have some legal history around their substance use. And so we can meet not only the actual underlying substance use disorder, but the medical, mental health, and socioeconomic needs of our patients all within the same door. That's still not enough. The last piece, and this gets back to something, Peter, you mentioned about your visits with Chuck. Every single one of the staff in our clinic sees each patient as more than their addiction. These are moms, these are daughters, these are husbands, and we see them as more than their addiction. And we also realize that this is a chronic medical condition. So we will treat that as any other medical condition and not chastise them no one gets discharged from our program because they don't get complete abstinence right on the first visit. We would never stop anybody's insulin just because they didn't get their blood sugars low. So we're not going to stop buprenorphine just because you may have relapsed or used another substance. And so we really treat each patient with compassion. Our patients know they can walk in for a cup of coffee, a meal ticket to one of our cafes any day of the week because it's a safe space and they can come and especially if they're having a challenging day, they can just walk in and have a place to sit. And so that is really critical. It's not just the multidisciplinary expertise. It's not just addressing the social economic needs. It's addressing the patient as a true human being who has really struggled up until now. It's tremendous. So sort of taking my moderator hat off and putting my, my Brigham internist now in my 20th year here at this hospital, personally speaking, I have not borne witness to such a dramatic transformation of a model of care like I've seen in the past year. I want to make sure everyone is clear. What Kristen just described is a one-year transformation. We were absolutely doing a lot of those elements in sort of in pieces. But bringing that together in the way that Kristen described has been an enormous effort from the three you see as well as enormous numbers of people not in the room. But I just have to say, as a, as a doctor here at this hospital, um, ending my second decade here, um, I, I, I really, it, it, awe is not uh, strong enough. So I just have to sort of say that. It's remarkable. Just, um, 
we are going to we're going to come back, and I'm sure there will be other questions about some of the details and logistics about the Bridge Clinic. Joji, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about one aspect of substance use disorders, and that is the stigma. The stigma of having a substance use disorder, stigma of being in recovery. Can you say a little bit about stigmatization, how it impedes, impacts care, and I guess more specifically, what are we doing here to start chiseling away at that? Um, substance use disorders are the most stigmatized illness of any. Uh, this has been documented repeatedly by studies. People would much rather have any other illness than a substance use disorder. It leads to many you know, bad things. Number one is that it, that leads people to not be honest about their substance use because they're ashamed of it. And I tell this to my students all the time. When I go see my primary care doctor, and I have a great primary care doctor, but you know, I have to fill out those review assistants before I go in to see him. And there's always a question about drugs. And I'll disclose here that I've smoked pot, I've inhaled, and you know, I, <laughs> my college years were, some of that is a blur. <laughs> but whenever the question comes up about my prior history, my initial impulse is always to lie. To say no, because I'm thinking to myself, what good could possibly come out of me answering this honestly? Because I've learned over the years, and my patients have learned over the years, that honest disclosure about substance use is never rewarded. It's punished. And it's, you know, in the first day of my medical school, I was at a primary care clinic's office, and this is literally the first patient that I encountered. He walked into the office and he announced to his physician, Doc, I quit smoking. And the response by the physician was, it's about time. And I remember, even as a first-year medical student, I kind of knew that that probably wasn't the best response. <laughs> but, but the point was, again, patients learn over and over and over that any disclosure about substance use is met with some kind of punishment or shaming or criticism or stigmatization. And so patients learn very quickly that this is not accepted, this is not something you can feel you know, safe about dis disclosing. And so that leads to people not seeking care, not telling their doctors honestly about their substance use, delaying it in seeking medical care. So that's, that's a big problem. What we're doing here at Brigham, to address that, I think there are multiple things. Number one is that we obviously want to talk about it, and I think that's something that we've done quite a bit here. But more importantly, what we've tried to do is embody this idea called the no wrong door. You know, as Ben mentioned already, historically we have not treated substance use disorder as a medical problem. Many doors were closed to patients. If they were looking for treatment, they were turned away being told, we don't do that here. You're knocking on the wrong door. What we've been able to do in the last year and several years really is to be able to make every part of the hospital an acceptable door to walk through, whether you're in the emergency room, whether you're in the hospital, whether you're in a primary care clinic or a pain clinic or the sickle cell clinic, if you want help for your substance use disorder or you want to find where you can get it, we will be able to provide that or connect you to those who can immediately, not just give you a list of phone numbers to call. My father-in-law was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer a couple of years ago, and I was amazed at how quickly the healthcare system mobilized. No point was he ever just given a list of phone numbers. It would have been unacceptable. Yet that's what we did for substance use disorders. And so today, if somebody's looking for help, we know exactly where to connect them to on that same day, and it's never just a list of phone numbers. So that's number one. Number two is we've had entire generations of healthcare providers, both physicians, nurses, social workers, who were never trained and educated about substance use disorders. So it's no wonder that if you never trained about it or learned about it, that you didn't really know, understand it. And so we've done a lot of work with ensuring that the next generation of physicians and healthcare providers are adequately trained in knowing how to treat substance use disorders and also to see patients in recovery. So historically, we only saw them at their worst, 
coming through the emergency rooms, you know, cycling in and out, never looking for help, and or even if they wanted help, they, they seem to be lying, um, and just never getting better. What we really want to do is make sure that our healthcare providers see patients getting better, because actually people do. I always like to say that I'd be much more frustrated being a primary care doctor trying to treat obesity or hypertension or diabetes. Patients with substance use disorders do get better. I, I think actually, in fact, overall rates are better than obesity or diabetes. So we want to make sure that people see that people are in recovery and get better, and that's an important part of reducing stigma. Great. And just for the, Joji is very clear, at primary care at the Brigham, we also cure obesity and diabetes. <laughs> I, just, I, just, I just want to call that out. It's, uh, we, we didn't make that point as well. Scott, I'm going to bring us to a little bit more of a granular level. There are lots of questions from people who do not have substance use disorders about the safety. Should they require the need of an acute opioid analgesic? Should I take this medicine? Am I going to get addicted? I've heard about that from a panel discussion or on the news or from the scroll on the TV. Or what do I do if I've got opioids sitting at home? I don't want somebody taking them. Should I flush them down the toilet? Can you give a little guidance for the person who, let's say, does not have that disorder but may or may not sort of need opioids in the acute setting? Sure, sure, absolutely. Actually, this is for my curiosity. This is the audience participation part. Just show of hands, how many people have had a procedure or surgery where you had a prescription for 30 pills or more of an opioid, right? And how many of you, keep, keep your hands up, how many of you, if you used all of them, then put your hand down? There you go. So I didn't, I didn't see a single hand go down. So I think for many, many years, we were trained, and this is, you know, is to Jody's point, we weren't trained in addiction. We were trained in the fact that we were under-treating pain. And so for many years, we, and I mean that we as, a, as, a, as, as healthcare, were really conditioned that we needed to be aggressive with treating pain. And the easy way to do that was with opioids, was to say, oh, these are pain medications. They've been used for thousands of years. This is, you know, this is the, the best way to do that. And so, but what we found is that there's this, this switch that gets activated that I, I think is very interesting. What I mean by that is that people that have a procedure they might have really bad pain for the, for the first year or for the first day or two. And then usually what's described to me is that people will have like this really restless, sleepless night. And some people will realize, oh my gosh, I'm becoming dependent on the opioid and they stop taking it. Others will say, oh, maybe I'll take another Percocet and then I'll feel okay. And if that, that second pattern continues, that's when people tend to get, get hooked. That's when they go from the acute use to the, to the chronic use. And so what we need to do is, is minimize that whenever possible. Yep. So the, the first mantra that, um, that I like to say is you want to keep an opioid-naive patient opioid-naive. Don't have the exposure, then you're not going to have the risk of having the opioid use disorder. And um, I, don't know, I don't mean that in, a, in an uncompassionate way either because we, I treat a lot of acute pain, and we've found from many studies that the combination of Tylenol and Motrin actually works better than a Vicodin in a lot of cases. So if we can prevent that exposure in the first place, that's the number one thing. The second part is that, sure, there are conditions where you need an opioid. For example, we did a study, actually some colleagues did a study um, using these really cool digital pills, where when you swallow the pill, it got activated in the stomach, it had some Percocet in it, but it also told a receiver that the patient took the medication. We found that people that were discharged from the ER after they had a big like a fracture, fracture of their wrist or their ankle, they took average eight pills. That's all they needed. We've subsequently done similar work in surgery too, where if you, if you have your appendix out, 
most people need usually eight to 10 pills. We don't need 30 pills. So I think we've been doing a lot of, a lot of work on right-sizing the prescriptions where, again, across the Department of Surgery here, if you have your gallbladder taken out, your appendix, a hernia, 10 pills. And we're not hearing these huge com concerns about undertreatment of pain because we're not. We're addressing the pain. We're just making sure that we're right-sizing those opioids. Because the, the question is really about what do you do with the leftover opioids? A lot of us have them in our medicine cabinet. And you've probably heard even stories of people, like if they have an open house, people will go and raid the medicine cabinet to try and get the extra pills. You just want to get them out of the house. Once you're done with them, get rid of them. The safest way to do that is to bring it back to the pharmacy. Currently, most of the commercial pharmacies, including our pharmacy here at the hospital, has a bin. You can drop off the medication, no questions asked, and they'll destroy the medication safely. A lot of the police stations will do it as well. And then finally, there's a product now, a little bag. You can put the medication in and add some water to it, and then it disintegrates it and makes it so you can't use the medicine. Some of our orthopedic surgeons are actually giving it out along with a prescription for opioids. Like, how, how powerful is that? So get rid of it. Don't flush it down the toilet if you can. We're finding that it's getting into the water supply, and it's very difficult to filter out. So they've actually done epidemiologic studies determining drugs of abuse based off of what's in the, in the water supply. So um, we don't want that. Please just take it back to the pharmacy. Perfect. We just have a, a couple last minutes, Kristen, but I want to sort of circle back with you. We hear a lot about concerned family members, that there is a loved one who they see wrestling with a substance use disorder, and they want to help. Mm -hmm. What is your advice to families sort of wrestling with that kind of question? It is a medical condition, and we need to treat it as such, meaning perhaps your loved one actually took that first Percocet at a party, and that was a, that was a choice. That was a choice that they made. Or they started using cocaine. That was also a choice when they started. When they develop the dependence and the addiction, it no longer becomes a choice. Choice becomes almost irrelevant or out of the picture entirely. And so we need to actually provide the treatment and support to treat then the condition and all the changes in the brain that have gone along with kind of ongoing use. So I say that on one hand, the other reason for that is you don't blame yourself. You wouldn't blame yourself if your child developed cancer. Yes, maybe there was a genetic predisposition, but you didn't cause your child to have cancer just the way you didn't cause your loved one to develop addiction. The second thing I would say is there really are great medications out there to treat addiction, and there's still a lot of stigma even around the medications. And so if your loved one gets into care and the provider treating them thinks that they should go on a medication such as buprenorphine, support them. Because just as you would actually support your husband to take a blood pressure medication if he just developed high blood pressure, sure, that's to keep him safe so that there's no kind of immediate ramifications of a really high blood pressure. That keeps him safe while then your husband or your spouse lowers their salt in their diet, exercises more, makes all those lifestyle changes. So something like buprenorphine for opioid use disorder actually physiologically changes the receptors in a patient's body so that they're not going through withdrawal and they don't have the cravings. And so they can feel normal while they begin the long-term work of addressing the addictive behaviors that um, have developed over time, addressing the underlying depression or trauma that maybe led to the addiction. And then the third thing I'll say is be patient. Because like any other chronic medical condition, it's not a straight path to recovery. 
It's a very windy road. There's lots of stops and starts. And that's the nature of the disease, like so many other diseases. So be patient with them. Don't blame yourself if they relapse or fail treatment at first. This is the process and it should be expected. Well, I want to thank all three of our panelists for just a truly extraordinary sharing and very candid and letting everybody know the great work that is happening at the Brigham. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening. To hear more from experts at Brigham and Women's Hospital, please subscribe or visit bwhevents.org slash A-B-H. Thank you.